Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Everyone reading Howard Marks leans forward and reads a little more carefully. He is successful. He is a philanthropist. And Lisa Bramwitz, we know for certain, is a member of the Board of Trustees of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, The Met Gala is Howard Marks' fault. Yes, well, we actually very much appreciate it for us who have spent many, many hours at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There also is this question of investor psychology, and Howard Marks is co-chair and co-founder of Oak Tree Capital, and frankly, uh, one of the co-founders of the entire distressed debt market really understands how psychology can drive what is perhaps the best philosophy going forward, and he writes these fabulous memos uh, uh, from time to time, his latest bull market rhymes. Howard, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with trying to understand investor psychology. And as a student of history, where are we right now in terms of bullish or bearish? Um, I think that uh, attitudes were quite bullish uh, prior to a few months ago, um, with the exception of a brief uh, uh, respite during the pandemic. We've been in a bullish climate since... uh, since the end of the global financial crisis in 09. Not wildly bullish, uh, not, so, certainly not what I would call euphoria, uh, but optimistic. And that has been crimped now. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the big name stocks are off 50, 70, 80%. Uh, the whole market is off, uh, I guess, uh, probably uh, 15% from the high. Uh, so uh, I would say that uh, attitudes are more balanced today. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, when, when there's euphoria, when there's optimism, when there's greed, when there's risk tolerance and so forth, uh, that's a very difficult climate for the value investor uh, to find uh, bargains. Uh, so uh, we're happier today than we were six months ago. I don't know if we're going to be happier six months from now. That is to say that the bargains will be more pronounced. But at least, the, as they say, the bloom is off the rose. At a time of such incredible uncertainty, how do you position seeing value now, but also preparing for seeing more value in six months? You know, uh, one of the six tenets of Oak Tree's investment philosophy, which we established when we started in April of 95, and I've never changed a word, and I believe in thoroughly, is that uh, we're not market timers. And, and, and that means mostly two things. We never sell to raise cash to, to, to prepare for a decline. 
and we never say it's cheap today, but it'll be cheaper in six months, so we'll wait. If it's cheap today, we buy it. If it's cheaper in six months more, we buy more. Uh, and I think that that works much better than an assertion that we know where the market will be in six months. This is really important at a time when so many pensions and institutional investors have been shooting for that 75 to 8% bogey. We talked about that extensively in the past five to six years. This idea that that seemed completely unachievable in an era of quantitative easing. Suddenly, high-yield bonds have an average yield of more than 7%. Is this the best period that you have seen for pensions to actually hit their bogeys for more than a decade? Uh, well, I think that's right. In, 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 uh, well, of course, many have hit their bogeys. Uh, it just didn't look in advance like they would, but the stock market and many other things have surprised on the upside for the last 10 years. Um, but now, uh, as you point out, one of our big activities is high-yield bonds. And uh, a year ago, they were yielding in the threes of percent. Uh, one deal was even done in the twos. That's not a very high yield for high yield. Today, as you say, they yield in the sevens. So a pension fund that needs seven or seven and a half can make use of high yield bonds. And everything, you know, see, when everybody gets concerned when prices decline. But if you flip that over, the flip side of price deterioration is increases in prospective returns. So now the prospective returns are on many asset classes are higher than they were just a little while ago. And uh, again, a much better climate for the bargain hunter. Some people would counter this by saying inflation takes a lot of the value out of those returns, that basically on a real basis, you're still not getting very much. How do you counter that as a long-term investor by saying, you know what, at this point, it's worth it to get higher returns, even if on a real basis, it's not necessarily that much more? Well, you're right in that uh, we're not talking about an increase in real returns. We're increase, uh, talking about an increase in nominal returns. Most, most pension funds and other uh, uh, organizations reckon their need for return in nominal terms. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, th that is a challenge. Uh, and uh, w nobody knows what inflation is going to do. Uh, I think I heard out of one ear your previous uh, guest say that, uh, you know, some of the inflation factors will probably subside in the next few months, which means, uh, all things being equal, uh, an increase in real returns. How much are you trying to game out where inflation is going to go over the next six to 12 months, considering the fact that I know that you do not time the market or look at a sort of day-to-day -day price swing kind of issue, but this really does determine uh, how important some of these returns will be going forward? Uh, yes, it does, but uh, I don't think there's anything to, to be known on that subject, and I'm sure we don't know it. Uh, you know, and another uh, uh, tenet of our investment philosophy, there are only six, we're going to touch on two today, is that we, our investment decisions are not based on macro forecasts. Uh, macro forecasts are very important. The only problem is they're rarely right. And, and, uh, mo and more importantly, uh, any one forecaster is rarely right more often than the others. So we, we don't make our decisions on that basis. We are what's called bottom-up investors. We invest on the basis of, of micro, not macro, companies, industries, securities. And we feel there, through hard work and skill, we can get an edge. So where are some of the industries, some of the uh, areas that you're actually seeing deep value? 
you know, uh, they are uh, much more spread around than they were before. Uh, you know, s- some growth names uh, are, pr- are offering much better value than they did a year or two ago, down 70%. But, you know, we continue to find uh, opportunities uh, throughout uh, the, uh, the investment universe. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, the prosaic industries... Uh, are also offering uh, good good value. When you talk about the global investment picture, I know over the years, especially as the U.S. yielded less and less and yet less in real terms and in nominal terms, you looked overseas, in particular mm-hmm. to China, yes. as a potential area of prospective return. Has that changed as yields have gone up in the U.S. and, frankly, the economy has slowed so substantially in China? Well, on the one hand, we have a preference for investing in the U.S. Uh, you know, uh, the U.S., uh, in most regards, has the best economy in the world, and it has the, an excellent uh, environment for rule of law, for being able to predict the outcome when, uh, when uh, various uh, stakeholders' rights come into conflict. Uh, that's very important to us, especially you mentioned our business in, in distressed debt investing. That's very important if you're going to buy distressed credits to be able to predict how we'll be treated uh, by the law. Um, on the other hand, um, uh, from time to time, other parts of the world offer better bargains. Uh, we have the best in the U.S., but the best usually doesn't come cheap. So, and third, on the third hand, we like to have some diversity in our portfolio. So, you know, we've been investing in places like China and India uh, in the last couple of years, and, and absolutely will continue to do so. When I hear people say, you know, I've made my living for the last 50 years investing in the things other people said were uninvestable, high yield bonds, distressed debt, emerging markets in 98, uh, etc. And when I hear people say that China's uninvestable, uh, to me, uninvestable says maybe there are some bargains there if, if everybody else is boycotting that sector. How fully invested are you? Are you always fully invested? We, we strive to be fully invested. Again, we're not market timers. Market timers say, well, right now we want 20% cash. We strive to be fully invested. Our clients hire us to invest in our asset class, not to time the market. Uh, and again, if better bargains arise, I'm always confident that we'll be able to raise more money to take advantage. About uh, three years ago, when we were talking about what prospective returns seemed plausible mm. or realistic on, uh, on some sort of safe or reliable basis, you said five to five and a half percent. You have a good memory. Where are we now? I think we can make seven to seven and a half. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not talking, I, I'm saying an institutional portfolio. At that time, I was talking for the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where I chaired the investment community committee, and I talked the expectation down to five, five and a half, as you say. Uh, or I think we came out, I think the committee as a whole came out at six. Today, I think an institution like the Met or uh, an, another uh, pension fund, endowment, et cetera, can make seven, seven and a half. Of course, you have to be willing to go into alternatives to do it, but most people are willing. What kind of alternatives? You know, uh, the big cl- as- classes are private equity, private debt. Uh, then there's distressed debt, there's real estate, um, and uh, uh, specialized forms of investing. Um, the important thing is not which sectors, the important thing is which manager. You know, in the public 
asset classes like stocks and bonds. We call them beta markets because most of the return is determined by the performance of the market and which manager you have means a little plus or a little minus. In the alternative markets, there isn't that gravitational pull toward the market return. There's no really market to, to pace it. What really managers, uh, matters is whether your manager is highly skilled and disciplined or not. And uh, uh, that's why we call them alpha markets, skill markets. Do you think that your peers are taking undue risk or not enough risk? Um, some of each, of course. There's a, there's a disparity. You know, there's, there's a range and all, peers do different things. Um, the point is, an area like private lending, where we're very active, uh, has been a, a darling in the past decade. A lot of money and a lot of managers and a lot of funds have moved into the area. Buffett always puts it best. When the tide goes out, we find out who was swimming without a bathing suit. When, when economic and financial conditions become more difficult, we find out who made good credit decisions and who made bad ones. We'll see. What's the historical precedent for this moment? For this moment? Oh, you know, it's very hard to, to, to find one that fits exactly. Um, you know, we've never had this externality of the pandemic. Uh, there hasn't been a war going on in a long time, an, an important international conflict uh, with, the, with the threats this embodies. We've never, the U.S. never had an economic rival like China uh, before. We've never really had an economic rival since World War II. Uh, but, and of course, we have uh, historically low interest rates. We've had, we had, interest rates went down by what we call 2,000 basis points, that is to say 20 percentage points from uh, 82 to uh, 22. Uh, and that was a big tailwind. So these conditions are, uh, are not reminiscent of any that I've lived through. Uh, but I think the important thing for your purposes and hopefully your audience's purposes is that I think that our, our taken as a whole, I think conditions are fairly uh, normal today in terms of uh, how you should manage your money and, and the risks you should take. And to me, that's the key decision. Howard, thank you so much for taking the time. Howard Marks, the co-chair and co-founder of Oak Tree Capital. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Eighty-five. Bill Dudley, the former New York Fed president, out with this this morning. Tom, here's the headline of his new column. The Fed's mild inflation forecasts mm. need explaining. 
They do. They need to explain it as a brilliant note. I'll have it out on Twitter. I'm sure John and Lisa will as well. William Dudley is the former president of the New York Fed and, of course, writing for Bloomberg. We're thrilled that Bill Dudley could join us this morning. Bill, buried in your essay on inflation is a single sentence on what it means for the labor market. April of 2020, a 14.7% unemployment rate. We're at 4% at the beginning of this year. We're now down to 3.6%. I need you to explain to our listeners and viewers why it's the Fed's job to move the unemployment rate, as you state, up above 4%. Well, the labor market is the tightest basically it's ever been. And you can see that by the ratio of unfilled jobs relative to the number of people that are unemployed. It's one, that ratio is 1.9 to 1. Uh, in, in February 2020, it was 1.2 to 1. So we have a labor market that's unprecedentedly tight. The Fed needs to loosen that up or wage pressures will accumulate, and that will keep inflation above the Fed's 2% inflation objective. The problem the Fed has is that in the past, it's been very, very difficult to push the unemployment rate up meaningfully without precipitating a hard landing. That's what the Fed's going to try to do this time, but extremely difficult to do. And they haven't really been as forthcoming, I think, in their forecasts uh, as, as they need to be, because uh, if you look at their last uh, summary of economic projections, for example, uh, the disinflation occurred almost immaculately. Uh, the Fed didn't really tighten very much. The unemployment rate didn't rise. Uh, yet inflation came back to the Fed's 2% uh, target. And it really begged the question of what, what caused inflation to come down? I think the way you get inflation down is you need more slack in the U.S. labor market. That's not a friendly message from, from the Fed, but that's what's necessary at this point. And Bill, just to put some numbers on that, as you say, core PCE year end for the Fed, 22, 4.1%, 23, 2.6, and unemployment, 35 and then 3.5 again. And many people have been asking the same question. Bill, you know the chatter right now. It's this conversation about a pause in September. How are you interpreting some of that conversation? I wouldn't put too much stock on it. I think what's what's happening is the Fed's pretty convinced that they need to go to something close to neutral and you know expeditiously is the way that they they put it, um, and so that's what they're doing. Uh, the notion that at some point they're going to take a pause and look around, of course that's going to happen at some point, but it's going to be driven by the the economic data. Uh, I think that the economy is going to have enough momentum uh, to keep the Fed to the Fed so the Fed will keep going uh, into the fall. Uh, the market's priced to a peak in the federal funds rate of 3%. I think we're going to get to there uh, pretty easily, and the Fed will probably actually have to push beyond that ultimately. Bill, what kind of unemployment rate are you looking for to indicate perhaps a tightening, uh, a loosening in the very, very tight labor market? Well, the Fed's own forecast is that uh, a neutral unemployment rate consistent with 2% inflation is 4%. So I think you need to get the unemployment rate up to at least 4%. Uh, the fact that we have so many unfilled jobs uh, suggests that maybe uh, the, the unemployment rate consistent with 2% inflation is even higher than 4%. So I think we need to at least get to 4%. And that's the problem. It's difficult to do that without precipitating a full-blown recession. Bill, did you take any message from the fact that President Biden met with Fed Chair Jay Powell yesterday, that there was this focus on the Fed being the main driver for what happens with inflation going forward and the politicization of the Federal Reserve? Well, I think Biden was actually not politicizing the Fed. He was basically saying the Fed's job is to control inflation, and I'm not going to uh, challenge the independence of the Fed to do that. Uh, in some ways, though, he's putting the burden now on the Federal Reserve rather than on the administration. Uh, I viewed it as a political event, not an economic event. Uh, I, th I don't think it changes right. what the Federal Reserve is going to do uh, or what the Biden administration is going to do. 
Bill, we had a one-off medical event, a pandemic of our lifetime that got us out to 14.7% unemployment. Can we cut any central bank slack and have them extend out the x-axis and just take longer to get this done to repair off of this medical event? Well, if they take longer, the risk will be that uh, inflation will stay higher, uh, and then that will start to get embedded in higher inflation expectations, which will make their job uh, more difficult. The good news for the Fed right now is they're highly credible. Uh, market uh, participants expect the Fed will do the job and get inflation back down. Inflation expectations at the longer-term horizons are still very well anchored. If the Fed dawdles, uh, then the risk is that inflation expectations become less well anchored, which will make it harder for the Fed to get inflation back down. But is your view hardening, not softening, based on incoming data that this Fed funds might end up with a four handle and maybe not a three? I don't think it's changed too much. I mean, the good news is that the Fed has things in hand uh, today in terms of market confidence, in terms of inflation expectations being well anchored. That's that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is I think people are understating how difficult this job is. What do you make of this idea that they can target job openings, Bill? Jolts data, which is a little bit dated. What do you make of that? Well, I think their story is, is, is a quite optimistic one, that they can tighten monetary policy sufficiently to reduce uh, the demand for labor without uh, actually pushing up the unemployment rate meaningfully. Uh, this is the tightest labor market I think we've ever had, frankly. Uh, and it, it seems to me if the tight, if labor market is tighter than it's ever been before, uh, that makes the job more difficult, not uh, easier. Super hard. Bill, wonderful to catch up. Bill Dudley there, the former New York Fed president on the path forward and a really interesting piece on the Fed's inflation forecast available on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg terminal on the Bloomberg opinion column. Here's a note from our next guest, Tom. Back in April, we lampooned a Washington Post opinion writer for their obtuse observation that if it were not for that darn inflation, Biden's economy would be extraordinary. The writer went on to say that Rubin's logic was as intellectually robust as us saying that if our grandmother had wheels, she would be a bus. That can only be the wonderful Stephen Shork, founder and president of the Shork Group, John. His note, folks, is just the breath of fresh air within the petroleum business. Is Ed Morris of Citigroup, who we just uh, uh, listened to, talks about the macroeconomics of the moment. Stephen Shork is hyper-defined. Steve, let me go to the single sentence of your note. 99% of us are simply getting poorer in this commodity surge. Will that trend continue? Uh, Absolutely, Tom. So real disposable income, what we have to spend, has fallen in 10 of the past 13 months because of runaway inflation. Inflation, by the way, that all the smartest people in the world uh, spent the better part of last year doing yeoman's work, making fools of themselves every single week, saying that, oh, inflation is transitory. Yes, if I don't have to eat, if I don't have to put the lights on, if I don't want it to stay uh, cool this summer, yes, inflation... Not, not a problem. But what we're seeing now, Tom, it always comes down to commodities. And what we're looking at in the energy industry, well, we know that story. But what most people, especially the ESG crowd or the people that are taking the war against natural gas is the war on natural gas is a war on the American consumer. So what it has done to fertilizer prices, of course, natural gas is a key feedstock into synthetic ammonia fertilizer. So we're putting fewer seeds into the ground this spring, which means we're going to take fewer crops out of the ground in the fall. So the inflation has not peaked. Right. I, I mean, peaked on the core level. But as far as energy and food, which is all, <clears throat> all inflation has right. not peaked. 
And, and Tom, this is the problem. Runaway inflation at the gas pump and at the grocery counter has been the uh, lead indicator for recession of the last six recessions in the United States, beginning with the Okay, Arab. Steve, I want to go to the hyper, hyper detail of your note and your true expertise on distillates. Do you have any optimism we're going to invest given these higher prices? Well, as uh, Winston Churchill once said about America, we always make the right decision after we've tried every other decision. So I'm, I'm not quite sure we're there yet. Uh, here on the East Coast, of course, what has happened? Well, over the past three years, we've cut our refinery capacity by 40%. So now gasoline production on the East Coast ha has held steady. But when you cut your capacity to make things out of crude oil, something has to give. So while we've maintained the status quo on gasoline production, diesel production has fallen 40%. So right now, diesel stocks for the first time ever are in the East Coast are below 9 million barrels. So we are looking at a dire situation in the diesel market. But we're not quite there. The smartest thing the Biden administration can do with regard to uh, the energy crisis here in the United States is rescind the Jones Act. The Jones Act requires all interstate commerce, waterborne, be tagged on American flag vessels. Well, guess what? We don't have enough American flag vessels. You need to rescind the Jones Act, allow diesel, gasoline being manufactured in Houston to put that on foreign flag vessels, to bring it around the, the uh, tip of Florida and get it into the East Coast. That is the smartest thing to invest in a short-term fix. Yeah. Regard to the longer-term fix, no, there is not a political will at this point to invest in fossil fuels thereby the long-term structural imbalance between supply and demand will remain. High prices, therefore, have to remain, Tom. Stephen, have you been surprised by how little pushback there has been on consumers with respect to reducing spending? There has been a reduction in real spending, if you look uh, generally at the trend. However, overall, they continue to spend more, uh, even as you see new records every day of gas prices. Yeah, absolutely, Lisa. Now, the calculus there has changed because we have substitutes in the market, i.e. EVs. So it used to be consumer spending would drop off from gasoline prices. National average uh, hit about $3.63.80. Uh, natural gasoline, I'm excuse me, gasoline on the NYMEX now is trading over $4 a, a gallon. So the AAA average uh, right now is about $4.60 national average. Given where futures are trading now, by the 4th of July, uh, gasoline prices will be another 20 cents higher, $4.80. I do have to believe, even though we've never had anything to, to mark this against, uh, we will start to see that. But to your point, yes, that it has been one of the positives. Consumer spending the last week came out last week uh, stronger than expected. But the problem there is that there are, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop because the personal savings rate uh, plunged to 4.4%. We are well below the 30-year non-recession mean on savings and the 60-year non-recession mean on savings. In fact, savings rate is now is at the lowest point since 2013. So the bottom line, Lisa, is we've run out of all the stimulus money. Americans are dipping into their piggy banks. It costs more to drive to your picnics, to go to the beach, so forth. So in the next quarter, yes, I do expect to see consumer spending to tail off, which, of course, is a problem, given that consumer spending is two-thirds of the U.S. economy. And this, therefore, this is why I'm still comfortable in saying if the United States is not currently in recession, given these food costs, these uh, energy costs are falling income, we will be 
in a recession within the next six months. Stephen, you just say thank you. But um, that one was a little bit depressing. Stephen, thank you, though. Anyway, Stephen Shork there of the Shork Group. Thank you, buddy. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is not a small matter. Lean forward and listen, Global Wall Street. There's a guy up in Connecticut who runs a small shop who says cash is trash. Deborah Cunningham joined Federated when she was 12 years old. She's been doing this forever. She is the absolute dean of global liquidity markets and CIO at Federated Hermes, CFA Pittsburgh, and the rest of it as well. And Deborah, you go after Mr. Dalio and you say cash is an asset. Discuss why cash is not trash. Well, well, first of all, I want to know how I can get in on the trip to Vienna. Very Please good. Please include me in those emails. We will. Um, as far as uh, you know, the cash markets at this point, as you mentioned earlier, we have been in a zero re- yield environment for the better part of 14 years now at this point in time. It's not a healthy market. 17% isn't healthy, but 17 basis points isn't healthy. We are now getting back to a point from an economic standpoint where we have an inflationary environment that is above the bare minimums, one and a half to two and a quarter percent. In, in that environment, we need short-term yields that are above that, and we are getting to that, uh, to that end result. As such, your cash is now a valuable um, investment that no longer is just there earning your um, earning safety and and you know a minimal return. It is now not only earning safety, right. but also earning a viable return above where the inflationary rate is. We're getting there. We're not there yet. But certainly, certainly above, you know, sort of the zero bound mm-hmm. where we have been locked for a very long period of time. And the heritage of this, folks, with the federated funds, basically, is a generalization. They invented the money market fund. There's some that would quibble with that. But they've been doing this and owning the high ground on short-term paper for years. Deborah Cunningham, talk to Lagarde and the ECB as John and I were talking about, should we fear these initial rate rises from any major central bank? 
Well, I do think the ECB, as was mentioned before, has some unique issues going on with it. Certainly Brexit complicated and you know, was a factor that led into um, some of the shortcomings of both the UK economy as well as the European economy in, in, in broad terms. So I think that's a factor that still has to be dealt with in a way that we are not subjected to here in the United States. Having said that, when you look at those economies, yes, they're not as vibrant, they're not as um, fulsome, and certainly from a labor market perspective, they don't have the same um, you know, numbers that we have along those lines, the same strengths that we have. And as such, there are more challenges. And yet they should not be in a negative interest rate environment. They should be at a point where there is cash, you know, there are cash earnings there as well. The economies, for the most part, are not in um, any kind of danger of going into a recession. Yeah. Not a large, not a, not not a, a large growth environment. But when you're looking at, you know, sort of steady and sure, you may see some setbacks as you go from, you know, minus five to zero to plus five to one. But there. Are, there, that, that, that's part of what needs to happen in order to get out of the, I think part of the malaise that they have been in, in addition to Brexit, has been the negative rate environment where Deborah, there has not been healthy fixed income alternatives. Deborah, just real quick here, I'm wondering whether you're actually seeing investors respond to this idea that cash is not trash, that it's a viable asset class in its own right with real uh, yield. Is that something that you're seeing uh, create a shift away from riskier assets back into cash for the asset value. Yes, it's it's out of riskier assets, absolutely. It's also out of bank deposit assets because those um, don't follow the natural market rates, they're an administered rate. And so they remain in that zero bound for the most part, um, for most banks who don't want deposits. And it's certainly something that I think is a welcome um, alternative for investors that don't wanna take on a lot of risk want to maintain a lot of liquidity, keep their powder dry, yet still earn a return in the process of keeping their cash invested. Deborah, looking forward to your appearance in Vienna. Thanks for being with us. Deborah Cunningham there at Federated Hermes. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight. From the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, 
or wherever you get your podcasts.